Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. From Sage Magazine, you're listening to Habitations. I'm Ivana Andrade. Through experimentation, ecology offers insights into how natural systems work. Like other sciences, ecology explores the world in terms that are often considered to be value-free. Religions, on the other hand, are complex systems of values that heavily influence culture and ethics. For many reasons, the fields of ecology and religion haven't traditionally communicated. Why would it be necessary or desirable for these two fields to interact? Is it possible for religions, ancient sources of wisdom, to inform our understanding of ecological relationships? My guest, Mary Evelyn Tucker, is a professor here at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. And she's exploring these questions and the ways these two fields can and should interact. Mary Evelyn is a leading scholar in Asian religions and is a pioneering force behind the emerging academic field of religion and ecology. She has written extensively as a Confucian scholar. She directs the Forum for Religion and Ecology at Yale, which she founded with her husband, John Grimm, in 1998. She has worked closely with the prominent cultural historian Thomas Berry. This partnership has produced books such as The Great Work and The Sacred Universe. Most recently, she collaborated with Thomas Berry, John Grimm, and the evolutionary philosopher Brian Swim to make the film Journey of the Universe. Mary Evelyn Tucker, welcome to Habitations. Thank you. So can you describe what does religion have to do with ecology? First of all, to, to put in some qualifications, we all know religion has immense problems, and we can see it in conflicts around the world historically and at present, and many people want nothing to do with religion because of it, and especially because the aspirations of religious traditions are so high, and they can very, they don't often live up to those aspirations of loving and caring for other people and so on. But at the same time, I would say both pragmatically and thinking in the long term, religions do matter in people's lives um, for the vast majority of people around the planet still, even with modernization and so on. And so there's a promise that uh, religions can enter into ecology in a more robust and helpful way. So acknowledging the promise, the problems of religion, we can also say there's promise. Why? Because they are containers of the values and the ethics that drive culture. Um, and as we begin to affect and open up those values um, and ethics to embrace not just humans, but human-earth relations, we have a potential for creating the foundations for more sustainable societies. So what are some ways that, that a religious tradition can inform modern environmental ethics? Well, that is exactly what we're trying to do in the Forum on Religion and Ecology for the last 20 years in collaboration with many, many people, theologians, historians, and scholars of religion, people in religious communities, religious leaders, and the environmental community, scientists, policy people, and so on. So what we did was at, at Harvard in the mid-90s, from 95 to 98, we created conferences for all the world's religions and indigenous traditions, of course, was part of that. And we invited 
people from around the world. These were amazing people already thinking about how the traditions could be brought forward into their ecological phase. Because we know there are views of nature. We know there's even ethics for nature in these traditions. But they had been dormant. They needed to be revived, reconstructed. We, we speak about this as retrieval, reevaluation, and reconstruction. So then over seven years, again with hundreds of scholars, we published these volumes from Harvard on world religions and ecology. We had more conferences and so on. And now it's very clear, um, at least to, to some of us, that this groundwork of the last few decades is beginning to really take root. And that to me is very, very exciting because uh, We've been trying to say all along it's a worldviews change. There's a field here within academia and education, but there's a force within the larger society that is really beginning to yeast and scale up. So what do you think are some of the limitations in this approach in, in trying to combine or integrate science and values in the classroom and even outside the classroom? I think the environmental movement uh, has been robust has been heroic at times, has been ingenious, so much dedication, so much thought from scientists, environmentalists, activists, and so on. And that's why now we're at a moment when we see science and the scientific facts are necessary but not sufficient. They haven't changed the, the meter on climate change, for example, and behavior and, and so on. Um, they haven't changed the political will. So science and policy necessary but not sufficient. We've got hundreds of policy papers on, on climate and a range of these issues, but we haven't been able to change. So partly because one of the things I'm hoping as the religious communities enter more robustly here, I've been saying, you know, religious communities, you, you're, you are necessary, but you're not sufficient. So we need the ethical and moral approach. We need the spiritual perspective, whether it's in religion or outside of religion. Um, we need to say, yes, there's something special here, even sacred, if we can use that word. But we can't just preach about it, even though that needs to be done by some people. We've got to evoke that sensibility in conjunction with scientists, policy folks, economists, technologies. We need alternative technologies. We need a new ecological economics, etc. So all of these are in place. That's what's exciting. We have an ecological economics. We've got robust solar power and hydropower and wind power. This is amazing. We have to scale it up. And part of the scaling up, it's not just economically and a carbon tax and, and so on. We'll, we'll do that. We'll get there. But sustaining this requires the resilience of the human spirit, and it requires a moral vision. And that's what happened with civil rights when Martin Luther King and others said, this is a moral issue. When apartheid in South Africa became visible as a moral issue, things began to change. How is our current understanding of nature rooted in a Judeo-Christian worldview? Well, our current understanding in the West is very much uh, influenced by the traditions that have shaped Western culture and civilization for two millennium and more. Uh, so if we take our views of nature um, to be from the framework of many things, including religion and culture and values, one can say that 
the biblical basis in the West from Genesis has largely been through the lens of dominion from those early passages in Genesis so that uh, humans should have dominion over nature and um, over the beasts and and the ecosystems too. So this has been a bit problematic as to how that's been interpreted. Um, So the notion that creation is largely for humans and for human use has been a very dominant theme in Western culture. In more recent years, however, as theologians and ethicists and even philosophers have entered into this newly emerging field of environmental values and ethics, there's been a new interpretation of dominion and of this legacy of domination over nature. And in fact, um, there's a whole movement towards stewardship. How are we stewards of creation? How are we caretakers of creation? How are we gardeners with uh, all of nature? Um, How are we helping the flourishing of the earth community? And what I've just laid out is actually a range of views from biblically-based views of stewardship all the way to the flourishing of the earth community, which would be a very inclusive uh, position that Thomas Berry has laid out for us, saying this is all a communion of subjects, which we can also talk about. It's not a collection of objects. So how we interact with reverence and care um, is determined by our worldview. So that's a beginning to talk about a a very complex but interesting and dynamic topic that's changing right before our eyes and in a very short period of time, namely, how are we regarding nature and are we simply masters of nature, dominating it, or are we trying to evoke the profound powers of nature to work with ecosystems in a far more cooperative way to understand the power of rivers, uh, the power of, of prairies, of fisheries, of a range of species. And this is why we need ecology to help shape our environmental ethics. So you, you brought up Thomas Berry's quote, the universe is a communion of subjects rather than a collection of objects. Can you go into that a little bit? What did he mean by that? Yes, it's Thomas Berry was a cultural historian of both Western traditions and Asian religions and indigenous traditions. And he was, as you know, our teacher, John Grimm and myself. He married us 35, 36 years ago. Um, he was a teacher, a mentor, and then a collaborator as we uh, did the editing of, of all of his books and so on. And one of his most well-known phrases is this idea of a communion of subjects. And, well, Thomas had a notion that the universe, as he saw it, when he wrote this up very early on, um, he said it would it emerge from three principles. One is differentiation. Everything is differentiated. Your hand, my hand, even our fingerprints and so on. Every snowflake, every leaf, profound differentiation, which is one of the most amazing qualities of nature. Um, But then he also spoke of subjectivity or interiority, that everything has an inner organizing principle. Um, So even from the emergence of stars and galaxies, what's the emergent properties that bring something from 
matter or atoms into more complex matter and atoms and so on into galaxies and stars and planets. So we know that this whole universe um, evolutionary system emerges from lesser complexity to greater complexity. And as scientists are beginning to understand this, they use terms like emergence. They use terms like self-organizing uh, principles, chaos theory even. So what Thomas would be suggesting is that matter itself has elements uh, that are self-organizing. Um, so the self-organizing dynamics the, are the interior properties of matter. Um, you can see them in whirlpools and, and so on. So that sense of subjectivity or interiority is one of the reasons we can say, this is the third principle, communion or interrelationship. We're in relation to other humans because we sense their subjectivity. We, we look into their eyes and, and we kind of get a feel for how they're feeling. We know that animals, other non-human animals, dogs and cats and clearly light us up because they have some kind of subjectivity. They make us play and laugh and so on. And we're beginning to understand the subjectivity of the whole mammalian world, the fish world, the bird world. How do these great species migrate, for example? How do they commune with each other? You know, communication is imprinted throughout the world of nature. This is part of subjectivity and communion, subjectivity and interrelationship. So to come back to that phrase then, a communion of subjects means this extraordinary, almost mysterious relationality of nature, that our sense of interwovenness and interdependence is not just something extrinsic, it's interior to ourselves and to matter. The Chinese spoke about this as qi, and they would say matter energy, okay? That matter has its interior energy, clearly. Um, and that would be through, again, all these systems. So the notion for the Chinese was nature is filled with a pulsating and differentiated qi, and we are meant to be in communion with, in relationship to that chi. So as we nurture our chi by good food and food systems, agriculture systems, even by doing exercises like qigong and tai chi, we're bringing in that breath of the natural world, you see, and grounding ourselves amidst these dynamic flowing forces of chi. So many cultures understood this interiority of matter and how we had to be in touch with it. And I'm saying all these systems, I'm giving the ideals of them. No system, no group of people are perfect in realizing them. But what I am saying is the communion of subjects is a fascinating idea that I think we need to understand more and more, live out of, um, in terms of a new, a new ecology, really. And we can draw on the wisdom of various peoples around the globe who have understood uh, the livingness of the natural world. Uh, what facets of Confucianism, for example, uh, can we draw on uh, to confront some of these ecological issues that we're facing? Well, I love this because this is a tradition that I've studied for more than 40 years since I first went to Japan in 73, 74, went to China in early 80s. And 
this is a tradition which has affected more people on the planet than any other tradition just because of the size and numbers of China and its antiquity and so on. So in short, the values would be that we are part of, again metaphorically, cosmos, earth, and human, that the human completes this large uh, macrophase of our existence, the microcosm, macrocosm, but as we do that, we become co-creators with these processes. So a certain number of things I've been talking about of working with the dynamic and transforming powers of nature are very much in alignment with uh, Chinese thought and Confucianism. It's why they developed immense irrigation systems, uh, sustainable agriculture systems, granary systems for storage and so on. So this isn't just an abstract idea. These were literati Confucian scholar officials who took civil service exams to be morally contributing to a common good for the sustainability of the whole society. Um, that's an aspiration that influenced the French philosophers um, in the Enlightenment period. And they said, wow, this is a humanistic system, has a sense of a common good. The human is not just about oneself, but it's a communitarian ethics and valuing system. So there's, it's a cosmological sense of how we fit into the universe, but it's also a community sense that we're building with other humans cities and, and ecosystems um, that will be resilient for future generations. And this is truly a tradition that cared about ancestors and future generations. And that's, these are many of the values we need to embrace as well. You made a film called Journey of the Universe. Why did you make this film? So Journey of the Universe is a long project and a long story, but um, it was a 10-year project to make that film, to write the book that Yale published, and to do the series of conversations, interviews um, that I did with 10 scientists and 10 environmentalists. And what we tried to do was building on Thomas Berry's very small essay in 1978 that said, we need a new story. And a lot of people now are talking about a new story, a new narrative. What lights us up? Stories certainly do, not just for children, but for all of us. What drives, drives the action, uh, fuels the dream. And so what we said was something visual uh, needs to be made. And Thomas Berry had written with Brian Swim a book called Universe Story in 1992. Um, but ten, almost 20 years later, in 2011, uh, we completed and brought out the film, Journey of the Universe, here at Yale at the Forestry School. And with it, that was the first time this epic of evolution has been told in film form with the notion that if we can visualize ourselves as participants in a 14 billion year unfolding evolutionary story, um, we can both feel ourselves as part of the chi, as I was speaking about, of these systems, but we can understand the science that connects us to the explosion of stars. So carbon comes out of supernovas, carbon-based life actually comes out of star systems and so on. All the elements actually are birthed from the star systems. So that sense of our connection to this process is 
really emerging in our lifetime in a very exciting way because, again, of the dedication of scientists to every part of the story, from astronomy and physics to the geology of plate tectonics to hydrosystems and so on, to the biosphere and lithosphere, etc. We're getting from the scientists a way of telling the story but telling it in conjunction with humanities, telling it with a story, this is our history, this is our literature, um, this is our sense of even philosophy and religion. Where do we come from? Why are we here? Where are we going? These meaning questions um, that the humanities are willing to take up. There's a sense in the movie that the emergence of life was somehow inevitable. What did you mean by that? So at one point, Brian, the narrator, says... Brian Swim says, well, as Freeman Dyson, the scientist at the Institute um, in Princeton, says, uh, the universe must have known we were coming. Now, that is a little disturbing to some people, actually, as they, they hear it, because they think it's a little anthropomorphizing and so on. But what Freeman Dyson is referring to is what's called the anthropic principle. And some scientists will say this with a strong sense uh, or some with a, a there's a weak and a and a strong anthropic principle but the notion is that the conditions for life were such that nature emerged and humans also emerged but all the conditions were pointing towards eventually self-conscious mammalian life meaning us <laughs> and other m- mammals too so there's say it's a sense of almost inevitability when the conditions are ripe and ready, um, life will emerge. And, you know, this can be debated whether um, by scientists or others. There's no question about it. And I think all we're trying to suggest is that we belong here and we've always belonged here within these larger systems. It's not that we were dropped into from the outside, that sort of when we're conceived, we get a soul and all of a sudden we become humans. No, we're the human phenomenon is part of the phenomenon of the journey of the universe, you see. And so that's what we're trying to say. We're part of these systems. We're not apart from them. And as we see that, as our consciousness expands to embrace that, it will activate this energy for participating in the continuity and the flourishing of these systems. You can take a step back and say, well, that's self-interest. It's enlightened self-interest. You want to protect what you're part of. And some traditions would say, yes, this earth universe, it's the great self. We're the small self. We're the microcosm of the macrocosm of the universe. And that's why religions can make a difference because humans have always had that metaphorical relationship. The Chinese tradition that I study most, one of the great sayings is from the Western inscription, heaven is my father, earth is my mother, and even such a small creature as I has a place in their midst, that which directs the universe directs me and so on. So it's, it's that sensibility that we're talking about. So what, what do you think is missing in environmental education? Because uh, I, I know that you are, in some ways, an environmental educator here at Yale. Um, what do you think is missing? I would sort of return to your earlier point of um, 
what I, what I consider the still uneasy relationship between science and values or ecology and ethics. And I would say this is a, it's a, it's a divide that's sort of a givenness of academia, you see. And I think we've got to be creative to overcome that divide. Now, not everyone's going to feel comfortable, and there's reasons why scientists are very annoyed at those who deny evolution and, and so on. And there's fundamentalists over here who don't understand scientists. But we've got to work to overcome this divide because it may be one of the most important bridges we can build for the flourishing of environmental education, but for the robustness of our planetary systems. We can't leave out ethics, value, spirituality. And when I say all of that, it may be within religions, but it's also outside of religions. Many environmentalists are profoundly inspired by their experiences in nature, which are often spiritual and aesthetic and so on. So the intrinsic valuing of nature that's part of their work and their life and their intrigue of studying these systems, which are so complex, um, that has got to come forward. And what I think we share is between science and religion, ethics, values, is a sense of wonder and awe and beauty. And yet in academia, we, can, we don't often speak about this, but it's a, it's a hunger. It's one of the most important expressions for humans to be lit up by, wow, that's awesome, right? Here's an example of why this is so important to bridge this gap. When we showed Journey of the Universe at the Cary Institute over on the Hudson River some years back to one of the most distinguished group of ecologists who had gathered for precisely this conference on ecology and ethics. Beard Calicott was one of the leaders, 40 years working in this field of environmental ethics, was thrilled that the ecologists are finally taking this seriously. We showed Journey of the Universe a good response, but I made this point about wonder and awe could bring us together. And the next morning, a, a scientist said to me, that was a great film. I really loved it. But I can't speak about wonder or awe in my classroom. And I'm like, gosh, that's the impoverishment, you see, of so-called objectivist scientists or science or reductionist science, you know. I think we've got to move somehow into a space where we feel comfortable speaking about these systems. So we talk a lot in the environmental world about something called environmental services. Can you describe a little bit what this concept is? Ecosystem services. Mm -hmm. Well, as I understand it, and as some of the early founders like Gretchen Daly at Stanford and others were trying to do as ecologists, were, was to say, how can we value these ecosystems, water systems and, and forest systems and so on, in ways that the market can understand it? So we're translating what I would say are intrinsic values into economic values. And thereby saying, if we put a market price on these systems, we have more of a chance of saving them because people will invest in them. Now, if I give one of the best examples, it would be the watershed system of New York City. The choice was, do you build a water treatment plant or do you save the water and the 
areas of the Catskills, which are keeping this relatively pure. New York has one of the best water systems. It's amazing. Um, And because they chose to preserve the land as filtering the water. That's the value, right, of the land. Uh, So if you put if you put that in sheer numbers, you would say they made a great decision. If if you put it even in terms of the purity of the water, they made a great decision. So, you know, a lot of of uh, schools like the forestry school and and elsewhere are very engaged in ecosystem services, um, in in a more business approach to nature preservation of nature and so on. And again, I would say necessary but not sufficient. And we. We need to respect that, perhaps, but we need to also really make a space for this intrinsic aesthetic valuing of nature. And I think it's still not at the table fully. It's taking us a while to bring this discussion of values and ethics to the fore. Why do you think it's taking so long? Um, And what are some of the main hurdles in bringing this conversation into a more central point. So important. And when I said to Bill McKibben a few years back, we were at Gus Best's house up in Vermont at a conference up there, and I said, Bill, what do you think you know, about this question? Do you think the religions are going to come on board? Because we've all been working on this for literally several decades, you know, and people even before that, because John Cobb, one of the great theologians, wrote in 1972, is it too late? So some very prescient theologians and others have been thinking about this for 40 years, as was Thomas Berry, right? So, but sometimes one realizes, and Bill said very eloquently, when they come on, they will come on in full force. And that's just what we're seeing right now. Why has it taken a long time is, I think, it's a mysterious question. It's a good question. Um, I think partly because religions are inherently conservative and take a long time to, to make these changes and so on. Uh, I think they've all, many of them, as we identified years ago, um, there's elements of an otherworldliness, you know, salvation outside this world, or enlightenment only for oneself, not thinking more systemically in, in relation to the world. So there was a high, highly personal ethics, a human ethics, a personal salvation in, in many of these traditions and so on, um, that needed to be exploded open into relationalities of obviously better human-human relations, but also human-earth relations. So nature always took a second place at the table. And even in, I would say, the Jewish and Christian traditions, which have had a strong sense of social justice and Islam as well, and certainly Confucianism, for example. Um, But that was very human-centered. And so there is a sense um, in the Catholic Church and Catholic social teaching on the option for the poor, liberation theology was all about this. We've got to take care of the poor, the vulnerable, the oppressed. This is very powerful. And, um, but we need to link that up, and that's what's happening now, to this sense of the intrinsic value of nature to, from an anthropocentric point of view to a biocentered and geocentered and even cosmocentered point of view. That's the change that's happening. So as we do that, there's going to be a profound um, 
movement forward. It, it won't be just smooth. There will be resistance. There already is. But it will be inevitably going forward. And that is because eco-justice is what can capture the human imagination. Thank you, Mary Evelyn. It's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you so much, Ivana. Wonderful questions. Habitations is a production of Sage Magazine at the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. Our staff includes Noah Sokol, Jason Daniel Schwartz, and me, Ivana Andrade, with production help from the Yale Broadcast Center. You can subscribe to Habitations in the iTunes Store or through the Yale iTunes U channel. For more information about Habitations and about Sage Magazine, check out sagemagazine.org. And thanks for listening.